Let's just learn from these fresh pages just printed from the perhaps the first Tanya published on the Upper East Side of Manhattan right here in the Chabad house which is being published as we speak above, upstairs so we'll just, quick, uh, just learn a little from the chapter 32 in the original edition after chapter 31 went chapter 33 later on the Alter Rebbe inserted chapter 32 doesn't seem to be directly connected to what he was discussing earlier, to what he discusses later. It seems like an insert. And Lev, Lamed Beis, is the Hebrew for Lev, for the heart. This is the heart of the Tanya. What does this chapter talk about? It talks about love your fellow Jew like yourself. It says, Hashem loves the Jewish people. And he loves every individual Jew as like a child who was born his elderly parents who could not have children. Imagine if God blessed them at their old age they can have a child. Could you imagine the tremendous, tremendous love, intense love that the parents would have to this child? So this is a physical parable to the highest level of love that we can imagine. So imagine, multiply that infinite times Imagine the love that Hashem has for the Jewish people, for each and every Jew. So if you love Hashem, and you know that Hashem loves every Jew, then you have to love each and every Jew. So if a person claims that he loves Hashem, but he has no love for his fellow Jew, it's impossible. How can you love Hashem and not love, love, love your fellow Jew? So Avas Yisrael, love, your fellow Jew, is greater than the love of Hashem. Because that's the truth, that's the sign that you truly love Hashem. If you love Hashem, then you love those who Hashem loves. So how do I know if I truly love Hashem? It's how you treat each other. It's how you treat people. You can't hide behind your love for Hashem and be cruel, unkind, indifferent, unloving to people, then you don't love Hashem. It's impossible. If you truly love Hashem, the test is, the ultimate test, the ultimate sign of faith is how you treat other people. Because Hashem loves people. So the Al-Tarebi inserted this right here, and this is the heart of the Tanya, it's called Lev, the heart of the Tanya. The love of your fellow Jew. And he explains that true love comes only if a person is able to rise above his ego. If a person is able to rise above his personal self. And that's really the essence of the Jewish soul. And that's really the essence of Judaism. The essence of Torah, the essence of mitzvah, is to be able to rise above yourself, to touch the divine something greater than yourself. Where instead of becoming um, ego-focused, you become God, instead of becoming egocentric, you become God-centered. And your purpose in life is to fulfill what God wants. 
When that becomes your essence, your essence is not yourself, not your own self-fulfillment. Not your own spiritual self-fulfillment, even spiritual self-fulfillment. But the focal point of your life becomes Torah and mitzvah. The focal point of your life becomes to touch the divine, to fulfill what Hashem wants. When you truly rise beyond your ego, and that's the essence of what Torah and mitzvah is all about, and that's really the essence of what the Jewish soul is all about. The Jew, the essence of the Jew is that we have a divine essence that's not ego-centered, but divine-centered, God-centered. It's only on that level that you can truly love your fellow Jew like yourself, where you and the Jew are inseparable. And that's why he's talking about love your fellow Jew like yourself. Of course, a person has to love all mankind. You have to be a mensch, and you have to be respectful. But human beings, by definition, every human being is a world apart. Can I truly love my fellow human being like myself? Impossible. A person loves himself, <coughs> naturally, instinctively. Every human being is a world apart even the most highly evolved religious and spiritual human being, ultimately, it's all about self. My self-fulfillment. My spiritual enlightenment. My higher levels of consciousness. My fulfillment. My experience. My depth. It's impossible for a human being to really get beyond his own ego. It really is impossible. Due to no fault of his own. By definition, that's who we are. We are defined by our egos. We are defined by our self, by our subjective self. You cannot truly love your, love your fellow man like yourself. I can respect. I can communicate. But ultimately, it cannot be the same love that I, like I love myself. Could an angel love his fellow angel like himself? Probably not. Even if you're an angel, a pure energy. But to truly love him like yourself, it's impossible. We're talking about something that's unique. Because The pintaliyid, the essence of a Jew, what makes us Jewish is that we have, it's our divine core and essence. And our motivation is not ego-centered or self-fulfillment. Our motivation is God-centered. And the other Jew has the exact same core and essence. What makes me Jewish is what makes my fellow Jew a Jew. Because he has the same Jewish soul, the same pintaliyid the same divine core and essence. Therefore, we are truly one and the same. It's not one or the other. And the proof is, look how the world treats the Jew. If there's one human being who does something wrong, is anyone going to blame the whole group? The governor of Illinois is misbehaving. Does anyone talk about, look at those Catholics? What does one individual have to do with Catholics? That's one individual. 
If a Muslim blows himself up, do you hear anyone saying, look at those Muslims, all the Muslims. But if God forbid, one Jew does something wrong, the entire Jewish community is blamed. It's unique. It's unparalleled. Unprecedented. You know, and they're right. Because we Jews are one. We Jews are all connected. You can't separate one Jew from the next. This was a a famous rabbi was called to testify during the famous Bayless trial in Russia where they accused Jews of using blood, killing a Christian child, that famous old blood libel that has been discredited. And this was like the most modern modern day, uh, one of the last, thank God, of the blood libels, besides all the blood libels against Israel, and they called the rabbi to testify. And they asked the rabbi, they were trying to prove, he says, look at your Talmud, your Talmud is so racist. You don't consider non-Jews people. It says in the Talmud that when the Torah says, Adam, a person, you are called a person. Referring to the Jewish people. But the non-Jews are not called Adam. You see what the Talmud thinks of non-Jews? So no wonder why it's permitted to kill a Christian child to use his blood. I mean, it's such a nonsense. So the rabbi was on the witness stand. He was confronted with this question. The rabbi says, you totally misunderstood the Talmud. No surprise there. Just like you misunderstood everything else about us. No surprises there. What the Talmud is saying, Adam, is in the singular. Atom, you, the plural, the community, the Jewish people, Atom, Kriyam, Adam, you are one. Only when one Jew sins is the whole community put, blame their finger, point with their finger and blame the entire Jewish people. He's a Jew, look at the Jewish people. This never happens to none. No one will ever take one individual and blame the whole, all Christians or all Catholics or all Protestants or all Muslims. No one even mentions their religion. What does one individual have to do with the whole community? But only the Jew. Because the Jews are truly one. Because what makes us Jewish is we have a Jewish soul. What makes the Jewish soul, we have a divine essence. And therefore we're God-centered. We're not ego-centered. So our essence is not about us. It's not about, it's about rising above yourself. And what makes you a Jew is the exact same thing that the other Jew has. He has the exact same Jewish soul. So Jews are all one and connected, inseparable. And therefore, when does a Jew really serve Hashem? When do you know that a Jew is truly serving Hashem? Only when does he have the heart of Judaism? When he has a heart. When he has the love of his fellow Jew, like himself. But a Jew who has no love in his heart for his fellow Jew. This is a Jew that has no connection to Hashem either. He's not serving Hashem. It's all self-fulfilling. has nothing to do with Hashem. Spirituality could be the ultimate ego trip. It has nothing to do with Hashem. Now naturally, a Jew who's so selfless, who's so egoless, his whole being becomes the divine. And he becomes God-centered. 
This is someone who will treat every human being with tremendous respect. Because God created six billion human beings. And most of them are not Jewish. And they're not meant to be Jewish. Because they have a unique mission to fulfill. Their mission is to become righteous Gentiles, to become Noahites. And not only everything that God created has a mission, has a purpose. That same person will treat the environment properly, will treat even the organic life with respect, let alone the animal life, not cause cruelty to animals or to any living being, and won't even thoughtlessly just destroy a blade of grass, just thoughtlessly, purposelessly, because everything has a purpose. Everything has a divine purpose. But this is the window to the soul. For us, this is our window to the world. Charity begins at home. It's the way we treat each other. A Jew who loves the whole world, but does not love his fellow Jew like himself, does not treat his fellow Jew like family, like a brother and a sister. This is our window to the world. It's only when we're in touch with our true core and essence, touch with ourselves, touch with our Jewishness, touch with that divine spark inside of us. And therefore, we treat each other lovingly and caringly and selflessly and kindly. Then, that's our gateway to Hashem and that's our gateway to the whole world. So this is the heart of Judaism. This is the heart of the Hasidic movement and especially of the Lubavitch movement, the Chabad Lubavitch movement. Lubavitch is the city in which this movement flourished for over 150 years. What does Lubavitch in Russian mean? City of brotherly love. Because this is the essence of what, of what we're all about. This is our philosophy. This is the heart of the Hasidic philosophy to love your fellow Jew like yourself. To have a burning, passionate love in your heart to help and to love and to care for your fellow Jew just like yourself. The highest level a person could reach in life is when you develop, literally develop a pleasure. It gives you a physical pleasure to be able to do a favor, to help someone. You look forward. You eagerly look forward. What can I do? It gives you a physical pleasure to be able to help someone. That's the highest level a person can reach. Even higher than the spiritual ecstasy and higher levels of consciousness that you achieve through meditation. And that's only a preparation. The ultimate level that a person can reach in life is. The highest level, the most genuine level is when you develop a taste and a pleasure to do your fellow Jew a favor. And you live for it. You don't only live for yourself, you live for the other. Because that's genuine. That's 100% authentic, 100% genuine. When a Jew reaches that level, then surely your studying of Torah, your prayers, your personal meditation, your personal level of spirituality, your personal connection with Hashem is genuine, is authentic. But this is the test. When a person has no love in his heart, for his fellow Jew, and it's all about himself. He's just self-absorbed. 
It's about my self-fulfillment. What can God do for me today? Lord, get me high. That's not what a Jew lives for. A Jew doesn't live for. A Jew asks himself, what can I do for God? What's my mission in life? What's my purpose? I'm God-centered, not ego-centered. When you become God-centered, not ego-centered, you notice the other person. You're there to help. And this is really the sign, this is really the heart of Judaism. This is really how you can tell if a person really has a connection with Hashem or not. So the final answer is, which love is greater? The love of Hashem or the love of your fellow Jew? What's the answer, Alter Rebbe said? Love of your fellow Jew. And he inserted this chapter, chapter 32. The reason we're learning this is because uh, printing the Tanya upstairs. The Rebbe says you should learn the... To learn from the first, we're learning from the fresh page. Hot off the press. Chapter 32. If you took it out, chapter 31 would flow directly into chapter 33. But al later on, a second edition, inserted it because he felt that he had to insert about the love of your fellow Jew. This is so important and so essential that he put it into the heart of the Tanya, the 32nd chapter of the Tanya. The whole Torah is the heart. Bereshis, the very first letter in the title is the Beis, Bereshis, and the very last letter is Lamed, Leine Kol Yisrael, Lev, heart. So the whole heart of, of, of Hasidism, the whole heart of his philosophy, the whole essence of the Tanya is really expressed in this chapter. Because if you really understand what makes you Jewish, that your whole being is Jewish, your whole core and essence is Jewish, you have a divine essence, the other Jew has the same divine essence. So don't you need to love Hashem first before you can love your fellow Jew like this? I mean, you're talking about it gives you physical pleasure. Now, what is that? What, what is, how do you define physical pleasure? I mean, like you said, uh, a taste in your heart, right? Before I have a taste in my heart for another person, I have to have a taste in my heart for Hashem, and then I have a taste in... Well, actually, it's interesting. The Zohar says, and this is something the Rebbe spoke of, the first public address he gave as when he assumed the leadership of the Chabad movement at the first yard site of his father-in-law, Yutshvat, 1951. He said, the Zohar says that there are three connections, three knots, the Jew, the Torah, and Hashem. And all three are all interconnected, interlinked, interconnected. So the Rebbe commented, and the sequence in Torah is also a teaching, is also a, a lesson. Why does the Zohar start listing off, first he lists off the Jew, then he says the Torah, then he says God. They're all three are inseparably, uh, inseparable and they're interlinked and interconnected. Should have started out with God, then the Torah, then the Jew. And, because, and the answer is based on this point of the Alter Rebbe. What's the gate? What leads... What leads to the next step? What's the first step? The first step is, the primary step, is love your fellow Jew. Because a person who has not yet achieved a love for Torah, and it has not, doesn't feel yet a love for Hashem, but feels a love for your fellow Jew, and acts selflessly and does something selfless and kind, that will lead that person, inevitably that will lead the person to develop a love for Torah which will lead a person inevitably to develop a love for Hashem. But the reverse doesn't necessarily work. A person who starts out with a love for Torah won't necessarily 
lead him to love your fellow Jew. A person who claims that he loves Hashem, I don't know, maybe he's delusional. Maybe he loves himself, as Maimonides says. He thinks he loves Hashem, but he really loves himself. Lord, get me high. It makes you feel good. It's self-fulfilling. It's my higher levels of consciousness. I feel deep. I feel meaningful. What does Hashem have to do with anything? The ultimate ego trip. How do I know it's genuine? So you can spend your whole life deluding yourself that you love Hashem and it won't take you to the next step. It won't take you to love your fellow Jew. But a person who loves his fellow Jew, that's genuine. Because when you help another person, it's 100% genuine. There's no ego involved. Your ego only cares about yourself. You care more about your own toenail than you do about millions of people starving in Africa. So, but when you genuinely help another person, that's so genuine. Where is it coming from? It's not coming from your ego. It's coming from a real good place. So what's this physical pleasure? Genuinely helping another person gives you physical pleasure. What is it, what is it like? Something you feel in the gut? What is the physical pleasure? When you develop a pleasure, a person develops a pleasure, like you have the opportunity. Someone gave you the opportunity. It's like, it's like the biggest gift they can give you. You enjoy doing someone a favor. That's the highest level a person can reach. It's one thing you force yourself to do someone a favor. I know I have to be kind. I know I have to be selfless. So I force myself. I'll do it. But then there is when you enjoy it, it gives you pleasure, you delight, you can't wait. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. And when you hear the opportunity, you don't do it begrudgingly. You do it enthusiastically. And you make the other person feel like a million dollars. Could it be that when you take the action, it actually goes straight to your neshama? Whereas when you're thinking with your mind, it's just your mind. You know, it's like, beyond your body, beyond. That's why we develop the pleasure. It's like, you know, But you can do the action. Yes, the action is very powerful. The action will lead. But um, you also want to engage the mind and the heart because you can do the mitzvah and do the deed, but it's, you do it cold-bloodedly. You do it. You do it begrudgingly. The poor person doesn't feel too good about it. The person who needs your help when he sees that, that sour face, it doesn't make him feel good. Mm-hmm. It's like the story with the, um, the, Rebbe was, uh, the great Rebbe was very desperate for money to help many Jews. And this very rich person put down this huge amount of money on his table. And the Rebbe handed him back. When he left the room, the Chassidim says, Rebbe, we know you could have used the money. Why did you give him back? He says, when you would see the glee, the pleasure that he took his money back with, <laughs> so that people who give because they're forced to give thank God the Rebbe gave it back to him wow I have the mitzvah and I got the money back that's not a person when you get a favor from such a person I don't need you and I don't need your kindness and I don't need your favor please don't do me a favor your favors are killing me you can kill someone with your kindness when they see how begrudging it is and how painful it's almost painful to watch sometimes it's painful to watch someone give money it's too painful. You have Rachmanus, take your money back, please. Don't kill yourself. <laughs> but if you give it with, with enjoyment, with pleasure, then you make the person feel like a million dollars, make the person feel like a prince, like, not like a schlepper, I'm doing you the favor. 
You know, so that sensitivity is very important. How you give is very important. So Talmud says, not just giving, giving it with a smile. When you give it with a smile, you give it with a generosity of spirit, and you give it with feeling, and you give it with love, and you give it with a genuineness, an egolessness. Not I am the giver and you're the receiver. And let me make it very clear who's giving and who's receiving. And I'm doing you the biggest favor. And, uh, you know, you knock the life out of the poor, poor person by <laughs> giving the money. That's not the way a Jew gives. Loving a fellow Jew like yourself means you, you give it wholeheartedly, enthusiastically, genuinely. That's, that's very special. That's divine. But that's something you have to develop. But the act that when you do something good and kind, even someone who's not yet observant, due to no fault of their own, they're just not exposed to anything Jewish, and they don't know, but they're just doing kindness and doing good deeds. That is the gateway. That will inevitably lead them, because they're good neshamas. They're doing something good. It's coming from a genuine place. Your ego doesn't dictate to you to help another person, especially to help them generously, and with, with kindness and with love and with caring, that doesn't come from ego. That comes from a genuine place. So develop that. That's the gateway. Inevitably, this person will find his way to Torah because he's a good neshama. Maybe it's ignorance. He simply doesn't know better. But inevitably, that will, he will develop a love for Torah and a love for Hashem. Also, when you love of Torah and love of Hashem is not of this world. When you help a fellow Jew, it's of this world. It's, it's concrete. It's, it's tangible. It's tangible. tangible. But love of Torah and love of Hashem is not tangible. Right. That's why it's... Love is tangible. That's no, of this no, world. It's spirit. no, it's not of this world. Well, nobody can measure your love of Torah. Nobody can measure your love of God. He's saying it's not objective. It's not something you can see. When you help a fellow Jew, that's measurable. You can measure that. Right. It's hard. You can't delude yourself. <laughs> you are, you are, you are. Yeah. With love, no one could know. You can claim that you love. You can delude yourself that you love. And really, it's all about yourself. Hashem has nothing to do with it. It makes you feel good. It's not about Hashem. But when you help a fellow person, a fellow Jew, that's yes, that is very tangible, it's very measurable, it's very concrete, it's very real. Also, that's really the sign that you love Hashem. That's the sign of real faith. You want to know what real faith is all about? It's if that faith translates into how you treat others. That's what real faith is about. Like we learned earlier in chapter, at the end of chapter 12, Joseph. Why Joseph was the ultimate role model in the Torah. The Jewish people are named after Joseph. Because Joseph was the ultimate man of faith. How did it manifest itself? The way he treated his brothers. He had every right to be angry at his brothers. Look how they mistreated him. His own brother, they had no rachmanus. They threw him into the pit of snakes. They wanted to kill him. They sold him, kidnapped him, and sold him into slavery. Yosef had every right to be angry at them. Of course I love Hashem. My, but my brothers, my brothers, forget about it. They show their true colors. Is that how Yosef treated his brothers? No. He gave him the red carpet treatment, royal treatment. He says, angry at you? Are you kidding? 
he showed them respect, he showed them love, he brought them down to Egypt, treated them royally. As much as they hated him, he loved them. He responded with the, with the hatred, with love. Because that's what real faith is. It's very easy to love Hashem, but I hate people. <laughs> it's very easy to love Hashem. But real people, real world, no, 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 that's, that's, it's human, it's messy, people are so imperfect, people are so impossible, people are so ridiculous. Let me go to a mountaintop, let me sit and isolate myself, let me sit and meditate, I'll create a sublime environment, I'll become a monk, a nun, I'll remove myself from people, I'll live in some perfect reality, perfect world, and there I can sit and meditate and commune with God all day and all night. That's not faith. You want to know what real faith is? Faith is that this world is Hashem. People, Hashem creates people. And everything that happens to you, and everything that people do to you, everything comes from Hashem. Hashem is speaking to you through the people. Through your human interactions, Hashem is speaking to you. Everything is coming from Hashem. Everything is Hashem. How do you know you really have faith that there's nothing else but God? It's not if you're living in some mountaintop. If you believe that nothing else, there's nothing else but God, it means everything that happens to you is coming directly from Hashem. So Hashem is doing everything to you, and Hashem is speaking to you, and communicating to you, and giving you messages. So if you can't find Hashem in people, then you're not talking to Hashem. Then, you, then it's a fantasy. It's a delusion. It's not genuine. But if you really believe in Hashem, then you can see the, get along with people. And see the divine spark in them. And see the divine purpose. And have friendships and relationships. And see the positive in people. That's really the biggest test that I That's the give. biggest test. That's the biggest test. <laughs> That's why there is no greater test. This is the moment of truth. That's why this is the heart. This is the heart of Tanya. This is the heart of Hasidic philosophy. This is Lubavitch. This is the heart of Judaism. That's what Hillel said. This is the Torah. The rest is all commentary. Everything is commentary. Tefillin, even the mitzvot in man and God. This is it. This is the sign that you really get it. This is the sign that you really have a connection with Hashem. Otherwise, it's all delusion. This is the most difficult. It's not just a question of man and man. This is between man and God. How you treat others, this is, a, this is the ultimate test of man and God if you're truly in touch with the divine essence inside of yourself. How do I know I'm truly in touch with the divine essence inside of myself? Only if you can forget about yourself and see Hashem in everyone. Find Hashem in the other person. If you can't find Hashem in the other person, then you haven't touched the divine essence inside of yourself either. This is the ultimate sign of faith. That's why Judaism is community-based versus all other religions are individual. Becoming a saint, becoming a monk, becoming a nun, becoming a, going to the mountaintop, tuning in, tuning out, escapism. Letting him in. Judaism is about community. It's not about yourself. It's not an isolation. Like, uh, you know, we're in the lessons. He says, um, about if one sees his friend sinning, he should hate him. So, uh, you know, that's in Pesachim uh, 113. But then, 
the, uh, you know, explain right. that don't take it out of context. Exactly, exactly. But apparently, uh, you know, exactly. there is that theme that has to be worked out. Exactly. That's why Judaism, you have to get married. The ultimate Jew, the high priest, the holiest Jew, would not be allowed to enter into the holy of holies, the holiest spot on earth, on the holiest day of the year, unless he was a married man. Because Judaism doesn't happen in isolation. You have to have a minion. You could be Moses himself. God is not present. You have ten, ten people together, ten Jews together, you have a minion. Judaism doesn't happen in isolation. It's community. Love your fellow Jew like yourself. This is, this is the gateway. This is what it's all about. This is, this is the essence. It's only then that I know that you've touched your own essence, your own pintle, the divine essence inside you. When do I know that you've truly touched and been touched by your own divine essence? When you touch the divine essence in your fellow Jew. When you see Hashem in your fellow Jew. When you see Hashem speaking to you in your interaction. And not only with Jews who are agreeable. It's easy to love a person who's agreeable. <laughs> you don't need a mitzvah to love a, a, a saint, a Rebbe Levitzel Kabbadish. But you do need a mitzvah to love someone who's disagreeable, like you were saying. The, the Torah says is, is wicked. Someone who's disagreeable. Somebody like Madoff. I mean, you know, how many Right. Not to name names, but you know, how do you love somebody who's like truly wicked? Yeah, but his soul is not wicked. It's a big difference. Yes, that's a big challenge. Especially if your life savings were wiped out. Well, Joseph was worse off than Madoff. He wasn't just, didn't just lose his life savings, he was going to lose his life. And he lost his freedom. And yet, he found it in his heart to... But he had to test his brothers. To love. In very serious ways. Right? I mean, uh, they had to have done tshuva before he totally loved them wholeheartedly. Yes. For their own sake, but he was not angry at them. Not only wasn't angry, he was actually grateful to them. Of course, he saw the hand of God in the whole episode. The only reason they did was the divine providence. Exactly. He saw the hand of God in everything. Joseph was the ultimate believer. He saw the hand of God in everything. And um, he recognized everything that happens in this world comes from Hashem. But that is a challenge. Yes, it is a challenge. And how do you develop that love? Well, firstly, you know, God doesn't give a person a challenge they cannot handle. Obviously, a person who was given such handicaps like the example you gave. A person who has such a capacity to do something so evil and so heinous 
as something that's such a, on a global scale, unprecedented, $50 billion. Obviously, God didn't test you and I. We didn't give you and I such a test. Obviously, he must have very special abilities to be able to overcome these handicaps because God doesn't give a person a test that they cannot handle. So, you know, as great as his personal inner demons are, and they're huge, and that's an understatement, you could imagine how great his personal angel is. What a, what a powerful force. If Hashem gave him such a test that he wouldn't test ordinary people like you and I, if he gave him such a severe test, you could only imagine what capacities this individual has, what potential this individual has. If he would have used this capacity positively, he would have made such an impact, a positive impact. If he can single-handedly destroy 38,000 lives, $50 billion, could you imagine the potential that this human being has, that this human being was given, that he would have had the potential in the positive sense to do something positive, 50 billion or twice as much, something positive, and to touch 38,000 people in a positive way. But he chose to do it negatively. But this individual was almost singled out and given such special strengths. So you have to look at the whole person. You have to realize that there's something very great potential about this person that unfortunately was not utilized and, and therefore ended up in a very destructive way. Because when you have such great potential and you don't utilize that potential, it doesn't remain neutral. That great potential becomes destructive and negative. Couldn't his downfall also have been a wake-up call for everyone that needed to know, you know about um, maybe worshipping money too much or not using your right, you know, your heart and your mind properly when you're... Well, there's no question that uh, he serves, you know, sometimes a negative is the best teacher because it really hits home so, so hard. And it's really hit home and it was a tremendous wake-up call to the whole Jewish community. For trusting too much. Right. But nevertheless, even as an individual, individually, he is definitely a very interesting, I mean, there's something very unique about him. I mean, the fact that no one ever did something like this on such a scale, it's almost mind-boggling. Mm -hmm. The extent and the width and the breadth and the depth of the deception and the and how it reached 38,000 people, wiped out thousands of people, and charities, and yeshiva. I mean, it just, it just, it, I mean, this is something for the history books. So this is an individual who had the potential to make history, positive or negative. He didn't do it all himself, you know. In other words, there were instruments, you know, these feeder funds, whatever. All I'm saying is that God chose him but he's one to individual. be an example for a whole society that's going amok. Right? So don't give him that much credit. Well, you know, 
It's no, individuals, Rashi, individuals. With what God gave him, he could have done the reverse of what he did. Let's put it this way. One person, positive is so much more powerful than negative. One person is able to have such a negative impact. One catalyst. It was a catalyst with so much negativity, with so much evil. How much more so one individual could be such a catalyst for good? Could galvanize. If one person could galvanize and be such a catalyst with so much destruction, so much heartbreak and heart-wrenching, people already committed suicide. Up to three people already who died committed suicide, they can't take it. It's so heart-wrenching and so unbearable. And so, could you imagine how much more so in the positive how one individual could, could create a revolution, could, could um, be a catalyst and galvanize 38,000 people for the positive? We don't know how many people, I mean, millions of people took a lesson from this also. Oh, I mean, this was, a, this, this was a global scale. I mean, this really hit home. This really hit home very, very hard. It jolted everyone out of their sleep and out of their complacency. And there's no question. It really hit home. A lot of soul-searching. Where the Jewish community went wrong. That we're, we, start, we're, we started worshipping money, respecting money, honoring people who have money, instead of honoring people who have content. Honoring people for their spirituality. The love for their fellow The love Jew. for the fellow Jew, love for Torah, love for God, love for... Instead, we started honoring arrogance, pompousness, ego, everything that's shallow, superficial. And we see many arrogant people were caught. And many innocent people were caught. And people who should have known better but they just got caught up because we st- that's how we started defining ourselves. But this caused a lot of soul search. What are we all about? Money is not the end all. Money is just a means to an end. It's not how we define ourselves. So this really shook the Jewish community to the core. There's no question about it. There's no question about it. Could, could it be too that Messianic times is like a test or a wake-up call to discern who and what you should be following, you should be giving your faith to? Absolutely, but it doesn't, it doesn't take away from the hurt and the pain and the, and the question is, how could you love, it says love everyone, how could you love such an individual? That's the question. That's what we learned earlier in Tanya, that don't judge a person until you reach his place. That you should feel humble in comparison to everyone. Everyone. Even the biggest lowlife. Because the way to compare, you have to compare apples to apples. Yes, you did not pull off a Bernie Madoff. But that doesn't make you a tzaddik. Because you weren't tempted to. Or you weren't in a position to. No one gave you, no one trusted you. No one gave you that. But look in that area in your life that you are weak. Imagine that area in your life that it's it's a Herculean struggle. It takes so much out of you, you just can't change. You know you have to change, you know you ought to change, you know you want to change. You just can't budge. Could you imagine the struggle that he had, at least in the beginning, before he totally deadened his conscience? No one starts out a mass murderer. No one starts out a mass gunner. You know, you, you slowly slide. You're on the highway, and then you take a little left turn, and you go crooked and more crooked. You know, maybe he started out... 
maybe had a bad year, was, right. his ego was too much, you know, I have a good reputation, I can't admit I made a mistake, so I'll get it back next year, let me right. cheat a little. You know how these things start, and then before you know it, you go deeper and deeper, and then it was too late, and it was too embarrassing, and you got deep. You know, you don't, you don't, no one is born, you're not born a mass murderer. It doesn't happen overnight. It, it's, you start making wrong decisions, and then it leads you to the next step. And then it becomes impossible. So in this area, you had, you had tremendous struggle, tremendous test. But at this point, um, you know, he's going to go to jail, probably for the rest of his life. The thing is, what he can do is to do tshuva for himself. And that's a lesson to us, that we need to do tshuva in areas where we're weak. So I think the lesson to discern from him is to do tshuva. Right, exactly. In other words, the lesson is not just to sit and condemn him. It's very easy to condemn. But what are you learning from that experience? It doesn't help you in your own personal life. Yes, he's a low life. Yes, I would never do it in a million years. How could you? How dare you? Very nice. What have you learned from the experience? Zero. What have you gained from his downfall? Zero. What you could gain is, if you apply it to your personal life, like you're saying, if you can take strength, Listen, he was tested and he fell through. Let me take my area of my life that I'm tested, that's very difficult for me, and let me see if I can overcome it. I should take heart. It's a very, look at this example. Look, look, look at the downfall. Look at the shame. Look at the humiliation. Look at the, it's not worth it. Let me take an area of my life that I am weak at and let me see if I could be strong. Let me strengthen myself from this. Let me take it to heart. That would be something productive to learn from this then you can help him also. Because if you find the strength inside of yourself to overcome your own negativity, then maybe you can trigger some inner process. Because this is all about an inner process. It's not just externally he goes to jail, we punish him, we condemn him. That's all external, superficial. You're talking about a genuine change, an inner process, an inner soul searching. If it shakes us up in our own personal lives and makes us better people as a result, we do some soul searching and it shakes us up and it gives us the strength. Now I'm going to overcome my test, my personal test, that area in my life where that's my test. And then if it triggers some inner response within us, then we can maybe trigger an inner response in him. In him. So yes, that's, that's the only response. So there's no, instead of just condemning and looking down and feeling superior, oh, I'm such an honest person compared to him, I'm... That's not, that's not the right response. The right response is, how, what can I learn from this? How can I become a better person as a result of this? How can I change something in my life as a result? If it doesn't change anything, if it doesn't shake me up, and doesn't move me, doesn't change me, and I don't personalize anything, then it's very superficial. I'm sitting and I'm condemning him. Okay, wonderful. Big deal. I mean, who cares? It's so superficial. That's all you took out of this whole thing? The biggest scandal in our lifetime, in our generation, perhaps in the century? A fellow Jew, that's all you took out of it? That you feel so superior and so haughty and so smug and so content and you did nothing? And you just sat there and bad-mouthed him and how horrible, what a horrible person he is? That's so superficial. That's nothing. And if everything is a Shem, then a Shem is talking to us, not just to him. You can't separate what happens to any Jew, what exactly. comes out in public about any Jew. It's all a shem. He's the newspaper is written for us. So exactly. you know, it's all about us. Exactly. It's a wake-up call for all of us. 
that we have to do uh, some serious, serious, serious soul search. Because maybe our whole spiritual life is a sham. Maybe, uh, you know, it could be a spiritual Bernie Madoff. We can, maybe uh, we're just building castles in the air. <laughs> maybe there's, no, there's nothing in the bank. <laughs> no substance. We got to do a little soul searching, whatever. But it has, if it doesn't shake us up personally, and we don't learn anything from it personally, and if it doesn't change anything, then, then, then the whole thing was a waste. Then, then it's really a Rachmanus. Then it's just nothing. Then it's just... If you don't take it out, everything in Judaism you have to take to heart. Especially when that happens to your fellow Jew. Take it to heart. It should rattle you. Shake you to the core. And if he'll shake you to the core, then maybe he'll do tshuva. That inner process will trigger something inside of his soul. Because you're right, all of our souls are connected. There was one time... It was a Leo Adnavi, Elijah the prophet, used to reveal himself to one of the Tanoim. And one time, the tragedy happened. I think Elijah the prophet stopped appearing to, to the Tzadik. Because he says, if it could happen in your generation under your watch, that means it's your failure. It's your failure. If a Bernie Madoff could happen in my lifetime, that means I failed. How is it possible that, how could something like this happen? Am I so superficial? Am I such a fake and a fraud and so superficial that here I am pretending I'm serving Hashem and it's so not genuine and so not authentic that some, something like that can happen so cold-bloodedly? I mean, something is totally wrong with me. And that's the way a Jew thinks. Maybe we're unique because we, no one else in the world thinks like that, but we do think like that. We do take responsibility for everything that happens to our fellow Jew. As a great Hasidic Rebbe, Rabbi Lamelech Elijah, once said, he says, why do Hasidim come to me to ask me for a blessing? He can't pay his rent, he comes and asks me for a blessing. His wife is sick, he comes and asks me for a blessing. He's sick, he comes and asks me for a blessing. Any problem they have, they come to me. Thousands of Hasidim are coming and lining up and asking me. He says, you know why? Because... If there's any problem in the world, it's my fault. So they're coming to me and says, Rebbe, it's your fault. You have to help me. And they're right. Because I am not genuine enough and I'm not authentic enough. If I did tshuva, if I were a genuine Jew, and my service to Hashem was genuine, and my davening was, a pro- was a proper, and I served Hashem with all of my faculties and all my capacities 100%, the way I ought to, the way I could, the way I should, the way I know I, I would like to and I want to, and I then none of this would be happening. None of this negativity would be happening. Why is this all the negativity happening? Because it's my fault, and they're right. They're knocking on my door. Rebbe, it's your fault. See, that's the way a Jew thinks. It's unique. But this is what Avas Yisrael is really all about. Love your fellow Jew like yourself. You are the other Jew, and the other Jew is you. There's no separation. If something happens to another Jew's life, you don't just sit there and say... Look at Bernie Madoff, look at that Ghanif, look at that mass murderer, look at that horrible human being, and you feel so happy and smug and content. <sighs> Compared to him, I'm a tzaddik. And, you, and that's it. That's your response. That's what you took out of this whole story. Shame on you. Nebuch. It didn't shake you up to the core. If it didn't trouble you, if it didn't cause you to do a little self-soul search, How could something like that even happen? 
in my lifetime, in my community, in my neighborhood. That means I, I failed. And if you don't think like that, then something is very wrong with you. There's another point, too. What happened in India, that couple was, they were so elevated, and the whole world saw them where maybe they would have never, you know, saw them before. It's like it makes you think, those were Jews. What am I doing? Look how young they were, and look how they touched the entire community of India and the entire world. What am I doing? That proves that Jews are all connected, because what happened to them touched every Jew around the world and affected them so deeply, literally. 3,600 Chabad houses like this all over the world. People came, you were here by the memorial with the service. People came from all over. People you know, we never see. It touched people so, affected people so deeply because we're all connected. It's not something that happened in India and Mumbai. We all felt it could happen to us personally and it inspired us and it affected us and it, it, it you know, stirred something inside of us, something real. And that's the, that's the choice that we have. You can either sanctify God's name all over the world. Look at the difference between Mumbai and Bernie Madoff. One Jew disgraced the whole Jewish people in front of the whole world. The most devastating Chilul Hashem. And one couple sanctified God's name in front of the whole world. That's the choice that we have. But when a Jew in our lifetime makes that negative choice, was given the choice to have a powerfully positive impact and you instead ended up having a negative impact, if that can happen in our lifetime, that has to shake us up in our, to our core. We better do a little soul searching. We better change. We better improve. We better take this to heart. And to just condemn him and be satisfied with that, that's, that's pathetic. That's so superficial. That's so trivial. It's taking the most, one of the most important events that happened in our lifetime and trivializing it. But that's the way we hide from our shortcomings, by you know, concentrating on this type of thing. I mean, not looking inside at all. Right, of course. It's so easy. Because we, we compare to all the bums and all the low lives, we feel we're so righteous. Right. <laughs> we become so satisfied with ourselves and so smug and content. But th that's what Alter Rebbe says. It says in the Mishnah, everyone should, you should feel everyone is superior to you. You should feel humbled by every single person. Because when you see that person struggling, it should wake you up. Am I struggling on that level? Those areas in my life that I have to struggle in, how am I doing? I'm not struggling. I'm just so content and so satisfied and so superficial. I'm not struggling in any area of my life. Well, those areas in my life that are very difficult, how am I doing in those struggles? Let me learn from that experience. I see how difficult it is for him. I see the person failed and the person did this terrible thing. Let me take it to heart. How, how am I doing in those areas of my life that, are, that I'm very weak at, that I'm very vulnerable? So then it becomes real. Then, then there's some inner process, there's some inner movement, there's some inner change, which could trigger an inner movement, an inner change in that low life, in that criminal, in, that, in his struggle, which we can't even imagine that struggle, because we don't have that struggle. We, not, we don't even have that temptation. How can we relate to that struggle? We don't, we're not tempted to mass murder, we're not tempted to rape, we're not tempted to, It's not even a struggle for us. 
You can't even relate to that type of struggle. To deceive your own family, to deceive a yeshiva, a tzedakah, I, we, can't, we can't even relate to that struggle. For us, it's not even a struggle. It's like, it's so, we can't even relate to that. But how about those areas in your life that you're just struggling? What do you take from that experience? How are you doing in your own personal struggles? Maybe individually and collectively, we're not doing too well with our own personal struggles. When we're not doing too well with our own personal struggles, you end up with a mass murderer. So maybe it's my fault. Because if I were to do better in my personal struggles, and I were a little more elevated, and I were a little more genuine, a little deeper, and not so superficial, a little more authentic, that would elevate the whole community, because we're all connected. So then he would have the strength to overcome his struggle. So we're all connected. It's not just he failed. If he failed, it means I failed. Yes, it's uniquely Jewish. That's the way we think. That's the way we're wired. Uh, it means that we have tremendous faith in Hashem that this is the way the system works. I mean, like you're saying, uh, you know, if I fix myself, then somehow this is going to have an impact on the whole Jewish world, and it's going to have an impact on somebody who is like massively defective, right? Yes. But you can't see that. How can you see that? So you have to take a leap of faith that that's the way the system works. How is that personal struggle going to affect you know, something macro like we're seeing? And it does. It does affect. But we, how can I see that? Okay. It's called trickle-down morality. We, we believe very strongly. They, they tell this by way of analogy that every year there was the... They used to give an award to the biggest... Yetzirah, the biggest satan. Every town would have its representative of the satan, and they would they would compare notes. And every year there was a banquet, and they would award the biggest, the most successful Yetzirah. And this was this banquet, and of course, in the front row, you had the Yetzirah of Paris, Berlin, <laughs> Las Vegas, fat, robust, healthy. <laughs> And in the back row, there's little scrawny, it's hard, you can count every rib in his body, he's hardly alive, hardly breathing, hardly walking. In a little town called Lubavitch, a little shtetl, a Hasidic town. These were Jews who were totally immersed in spirituality and godliness. Their whole life, they were constantly thinking about Hashem, thinking about becoming better people, trying to be kinder, more loving, uh, good people, godly people how shocked they were. Who won the award? The Yitzhahara of Lubavitch. There's this mass murmur in the room. How, what do you mean? The one from Berlin says, I caused 18,000 Jews to convert to Christianity. And the one from Paris says, I caused 25,000 adulterers this year. And this one says, from San Francisco, I caused 30,000 acts of, uh, you know, of immorality. And you know, they should have won the, the leading award. What are you giving us this little tiny scrawny Yitzhahara from Lubavitch? What did he do already? He says he had nothing to show for himself. He caused the yeshiva boy, and he was standing in the silent prayer, the Shemonesra, in the middle of davening, instead of thinking about the words, thinking about what he's praying, instead he was thinking about a naughty piece of Talmud that he'd learned early in the day, a very juicy, interesting piece of Talmud, and he suddenly had an interesting, creative idea how to answer the question. 
So instead of concentrating on the prayer, he's standing in front of God. Instead of praying, he ended up thinking about the Talmud. So that's a sin. What are you talking, talking to God, you're talking to the king, and your mind is wandering. He, he was embarrassed. He was ashamed of himself. He had nothing to show. This was his big sin. Not adultery, not assimilation, not, not an immoral act. All he had to show for himself was his never. And he won the award. So the chairman knocks with the, with the, with the gavel. He says, listen, if not for that sin, if not for that yeshiva boy, thinking about a naughty piece of Talmud, a Taisvah in the middle of the Shemadasari, instead of thinking about God, the Jew, in, he couldn't get that person in, in, uh, in Berlin to assimilate, to convert. He couldn't get that Jew in Paris to intermarry, to assimilate. He couldn't get that person to act immorally. It's a trickle-down morality. When the one on top, when the person on top, who's the most spiritual, who should be the most spiritual, is slacking, is not living up to his potential, is not dealing well or fearing well with his personal inner struggles, then the one on the bottom doesn't have the strength that it takes to overcome his struggles. A fish that stinks, stinks from the head. The head is fresh and the head is healthy. It lifts up the whole body. When the head, when those on top and those who should know better are living up to their potential, dealing well with their own personal struggles, then it gives strength to those in the bottom to be able to deal with those, their struggles. So yes, we are all connected. Because the whole world is in our heart. We are a microcosm of the whole world. Whatever happens in our heart, even the slightest change for the better, internal change in our own personal lives, has an impact, tremendous impact on the whole world. And this is reflected what Maimonides says, that a person should always view himself and the entire world as being on an equal scale. And by you adding one more mitzvah, you have the power not only to help yourself, you have the power to light up the whole world, to tip the scale, cause the cup to overflow and bring blessings and redemption to the whole entire world. So if you strengthen yourself, you give strength and energy to a Jew at the other end of the world in his personal struggle. So the fact that there could be in our generation, in our lifetime, especially in our community, there could be a Bernie Madoff that should jolt all of us even if we have no connection to this. It's not just to be horrified, what a horrible act, and go back to sleep. That's so trivial, that's so superficial, that's so pathetic. But we're talking about a jolt, an inner movement, an inner change, an inner stirring. Jolt us out of our complacency. Something is wrong. Not just wrong, massively wrong. This is, this is a complete breakdown. This is a complete dysfunctionality. This is not just wrong. There's something massively wrong in my personal life. Otherwise, this could never happen. If my life was on track, my personal individual life, with my own personal struggles, if we were truly on the right track, this could never happen. Because if I were strong, he would be strong to overcome his struggle. And the fact that there was such a massive collapse and a massive failure... It's a wake-up call, because there must be a personal, massive failure, massive collapse. In my own personal spiritual life, everyone on their own level. Everyone has their own challenge on their own level. We all know ourselves. That should be the reaction. If every Jew in the world took it to heart, and there was some inner stirring as a result, 
that would give him the strength to do teshuva, to, to deal with his mess that he created. This all comes down to Avis Yisrael. Love your fellow Jew like yourself because we're all connected. We're all one. That's the way we think. We don't live in isolation. That's the way we're wired. That's the way we think. So we take it to heart. It's very personal. It's very individual. We take his failure to heart. Personal. Thank you.